Welcome to the Western Baal podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful to those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Love What You Do Not Love, The Doorway to Ever-Present Peace, and was given by Vijay Fedorshak on November 14, 2020, in Prescott, Arizona. Vijay is a psychotherapist and author of Shadow on the Path, and Father and Son. He has organized activities, including conferences, Baal Theater Company performances, and the Western Baal podcast series. Vijay Fedorshak. The book, Ever-Present Peace by Arnaud Desjardins, is just full of information that we've got to try to integrate at some time into our practice if we're serious about it. And I think that probably everybody on the call is. The benefit of studying different traditions to me is that we get to look at things from a little bit of a different angle. Sometimes we think we understand things that we've studied and made every effort to apply in our own tradition. But if we hear it in a little bit of a different way, it highlights something that we just haven't seen. We just haven't given attention to in the same way. You know, Arnaud Desjardins was a friend of my teacher, Lee Loswick. It's just really rare, I think, for teachers to have such a, you know, such a bond and to work together. Lee used to go to visit Arnaud Desjardins school for a week every year and speak to his students. And Arnaud, it seemed, was flabbergasted by the way Lee spoke to his teaching, to Arnaud's teaching, rather than bringing his own teaching, that Lee was interested in serving Arnaud's students. And Arnaud did the same with us as Lee's students. Teachings uh, around ever-present peace were translated by a student named Didier de Moran. I've divided this talk kind of into four separate parts in my own mind. First part is thoughts, emotions, and ever-present peace. He says that the spiritual path is a search for what is indestructible in us. There's a quote, a famous quote from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, which I'm sure many of you have heard. Lead me from the unreal to the real. Lead me from darkness to light. Lead me from death to immortality. This is particularly poignant for me today. I didn't think I was going to say anything about this. Maybe I'll just start generally, and then maybe I won't get into specifics. But I've experienced death in my life very intimately, recently. He says that there is no peace without finding the indestructible aspect in ourselves. That what we do is we see comfort from that which is destructible. So I think that if we look at that, that's just really true. The things that we find comfort in 
are things that are impermanent, that pass. What is it, if anything, that is indestructible in ourselves? You know, when someone dies, if you have been present when someone dies, you really consider that. And life is such, and death is such a great mystery. What is indestructible? Arnaud refers to Buddhism and says that there is one cause of suffering. And that's described in many different traditions in different ways. I think I'll read the way that he describes it. But first, I want to tell you what Didier de Moran wrote in his preface to this book. He said that Arnaud had clearly said when he was in the process of writing this book that it would be his very last one, his spiritual legacy, so to speak. Knowing this, I could read between the lines his compassionate intention in writing it. What can I tell my readers, my listeners, that they can get? How to put these teachings in the most understandable way? How can I help them in their thirst for peace and joy? He had made, once again, this effort to communicate the purpose of his whole life. It seems like Arnaud put into this book everything that he thought he could communicate, that he wanted to communicate at the end of his life as his legacy. So he kind of starts the book by saying that there's only one cause of suffering. We might describe that in very different ways. Gurdjieffians might describe it some way. Buddhists might describe it another, Hindus, Sufis. But it really comes down to the same basic point. Arnaud says, he refers to the very core of the path. The cause of our suffering, the possibility of suffering itself, is in us. It is in the egocentric way that we function. And about your inner world, you can do something. You can even do much. And he says that this is a happy statement. Because if it wasn't for the fact that we can do much and that it is in us, there would be very little possibility on the path for us. So there is something that we can do if we see what the cause of suffering. He says that the most important question that we face on the path is what is the cause of my suffering? To question ourselves to come to our own answer about that. So this is the way that he describes it, but I think we each have our own answer for that also. He says that there are two parts of our intelligence. One is the ordinary mind of thoughts and emotions that we have. And there's also a more basic fundamental intelligence that we have as a child. When we are kind of in touch with union, He doesn't say it like this, but union, oneness, freedom, and that thoughts and emotions actually obscure that. If there is an emotion, we no longer see clearly. So if there is any emotion, we don't see reality clearly, according to Arnaud. Our thoughts and feelings cut us off from a deeper knowing and a deeper feeling which relates to love. I hesitate to use that word because it has so many connotations. But what is that state of ever-present peace and love that is not dependent on circumstances? So he says, this is a basic fact, that if there is an emotion, we no longer see clearly. So even happy emotions, positive emotions. And when I test that out myself, 
I think that that's true. I never see what is. I always see my emotional relationship to it. Even when things are going good, when I least want to look at that, that consideration, that is true. I'm out of touch with reality at those times. So now he says, like, this isn't about feeling guilty or feeling bad or any of that. I mean, his background is in the Gurdjieff work. It's just really about seeing what is, self-observing oneself and seeing what is as a way of self-discovery. He says that, you know, we think that our choices are independently made. Even if we would say thoughts and feelings come to us, really, if we're honest with ourselves, I really think that most of us feel that we have free will. But he says that our reactions and our thoughts are imposed on us by interdependent forces. I mean, I don't know about you, but that makes a lot of sense to me. One more short reading. He says, to see your non-liberty without doubt, you must come back to the fundamental theme. External facts have the power to provoke emotional and mental reactions that we really have no control over. When we talk about being a machine, that's what we're talking about. Because, he says, I mean, this book is really wonderful because it's like he's talking to you. He's kind of making his case here, and it's like impossible to deny. Because if we had choice, we would choose ever-present peace and love. But we don't. We've got something else going on for the most part of our day. And yet he says that ever-present peace is always in us. He gives an example of soldiers during World War I in this fight in Europe. And he refers to a book that was written by Paul Brunton, who wrote a lot about Ramana Maharshi. Brunton refers to a doctor who was in, in an abandoned church. And all these soldiers kind of retreat into this church and they're wounded, and they're maimed, and they're in utter pain, crying out that they would like to die, some of them. And the doctor that Paul Brunton refers to says that at 3 a.m., these exhausted men were in the abandoned church that was serving as a hospital, and there was perfect stillness, perfect peace. And he says that we contact that every night in deep sleep. We're we're in touch with that part of ourselves that's indestructible. And that it's possible to live that from that context, from that reality, uh, when we're awake. He says that the basic idea of every esoteric teaching is that we are already that which we seek. So we know this. We have studied the teaching. We've studied the Dharma, most of us. But this gives me a little more um, useful food from which to practice. Just considering that thoughts and emotion separate me from reality. So part two, the work required. Society turns us away from loving our enemies. Ain't it the truth? 
I mean, just kind of look around today. What's going on? There is virtually nothing to support us relating with our enemies, relating with people who we disagree with on a macro scale, I guess, but also in our own personal lives. I know I tend to do some of that. How much kind of varies depending on what circumstances conspire in my life and trigger emotional reactions in me. But I'd ask you to consider for a moment who, I mean, you don't need to say, but like who triggers an emotional reaction in you that is difficult? You know, a negative emotional reaction in you. Who does that? And what kind of circumstances trigger unfavorable emotional reactions in you? He says that we cannot be settled in a condition of peace at the same time as having a non-loving attitude. The equation can't be solved if we have a non-loving attitude toward anyone and anything. And as I mentioned, this isn't a matter of being guilty about feeling guilty about any of that. It's a happy thing because we can do something about that. And he says that it's in that turnaround. It's in that turnaround of loving who or what we do not love, that the greatest opportunity and the greatest challenge of the path exists. So that to me is a different angle on looking at things than I've had before. It kind of takes me deeper and makes me consider my own relationship to people and things and how the opportunity is in the moment when I have a negative reaction towards someone, not to be in denial about anything. He says that his teacher, Swami Prajnanpad, from whom he received a lot of these teachings, I think, was very definite about no denial anywhere. Be situated as you are now and follow the path step by step. True love and ever-present peace is a stable state of being. A common denominator of all traditions is renouncing the right not to love that which we do not love. I'll do a lot. You know, I'll, I'll work real hard. I'll do all kinds of practices, all kinds of things. But will I love what I do not love? I don't think that you can make yourself love necessarily, but I can make this turnaround toward people and situations. Arno tells this story of being with the Dalai Lama. I don't know how many on Zoom here tonight know about Arno Desjardins, but he was a very well-known French filmmaker. And he did documentaries on spiritual figures. One of them was uh, about Tibetan masters. And he filmed some of the great Tibetan masters of the last century. And they were broadcast on French TV. And so on one occasion, I think he said in the mid-60s, he was leaving after having done such filming and to, to go back and kind of cut the tapes up to make it into a documentary. And he met with the Dalai Lama, who was much younger at the time, and 
asked him if there was any advice that he had or any requests, anything he would say as he was leaving or no. And the Dalai Lama said, never speak badly about the Chinese. It seems like every day there is an opportunity to practice the teaching. There are people that are difficult for us, unfavorable situations that disturb us, things that we like, that we dislike. But consider that the world, all of it, with its favorable and unfavorable sides, as he says, at least from our perspective, is God or the absolute or the all, the favorable and the unfavorable. Take a moment to consider people and situations that you have this unfavorable sense of. I'll start. I go to Chipotle last week. Yeah, I think it was actually two weeks ago, after one of these talks. And usually I get everything together to host a talk and somebody comes in and they put as much energy and attention into what they're going to speak as I do. Usually they pick a topic that is so relevant in their lives and they discuss it, offer something of what they are working with and what they have seen. And after these talks, once a week, I go out to Chipotle. And so I go out there and I get some stuff, including a cheese quesadilla, which is something that on occasion I will just inhale. And, um, and I think I will do that tonight, by the way, after we're done, because I have had a day, I want to tell you. Anyway, no, I don't. So I go there and I order what I'm going to get, including the cheese quesadilla. And I'm really friendly to the people who are serving and the cashier. And I leave with my bag and I get home and I realize no cheese quesadilla. Where's my cheese quesadilla? And I'm like actually really upset by this. So I call Chipotle and it's like three minutes after 10. And I think nobody's going to answer this phone, but they do answer the phone. And I tell them, I say to them, where's my cheese quesadilla? And they say, oh, you forgot your cheese quesadilla. Well, there's really nothing we can do about it now. We're closed. Well, what if I run down there? Can you slide it onto the door or something? No. (laughs) I mean, we have the opportunity to practice the teachings in tiny ways every day. I work at this residential treatment center for teenage girls who have a lot of trauma. And it's not really a happy situation a lot with these kids. But the work is really feeding Those of us who work there as counselors, therapists, have an agenda about the way that kids should be treated so that their trauma is taken into account in the way that you relate with them. Because it's kind of different situation than it is with anybody else that you you would want to hold accountable. And so we're having this meeting and one of the people in management is yelling, yelling, just like loud. I mean, he's not actually yelling and berating people, but it's just like loud. Like, can you, could you, could just lower the volume a little bit? And I'm realizing what's going on in my mind and thinking as I'm considering this material, I can make a turnaround right here. I could go up to him and after it's over and just talk to him. 
I could say something about his loudness, but maybe I don't want to because that's his personality. I could just kind of befriend him in a way. I know he means well. I'd just like to take a break here and ask if there's anyone, you know, they might speak. Is there a situation that's particularly difficult for you and you have an emotional reaction that, you know, you could turn around? I will. Sure. Okay, so... We've just discovered, um, we can test in our house. I don't know if you've heard of radon or if this is uh, something that goes on where anyone else lives, but radon is like a radiation gas that comes out of the earth. And we've discovered that our house has extremely high levels of this. So... This is a situation that is potentially health-threatening and definitely financially threatening. This is a situation that emotionally hooks me. And so I've been getting a lot of work out of just trying to let it be what it is and it feels like a big situation and I'm in the thick of it. And yeah. For me, when situations come up, I'm more actually considering the idea. Maybe this is just what I need. Like, yeah. you know, it's not like I like the situation. I don't think that you can actually f- make yourself love in the way that we might imagine that. But I can look at it like, this is providing something I need to work with. I'm sure you've thought about that. Anybody else with any comments about anything that they could see themselves doing an about-face about in terms of how they relate with it? I have a situation with, uh, I would say it's a client. And he's always calling me a friend and making promises of paying me more. You know, he never comes through. He backed out on the deal. So, you know, and he's been like this all the time since I've known him. Thinking about this at work today, how I feel about it. Uh, well, I know how I feel about it. You know, I don't want to react. I I tried to point this out to him, but being in the in the work and and knowing that man is self-serving, you know, and we have multiple personalities. It's gotten me to the point where I understand this guy and I'm dealing with somebody that's really asleep. And I know I am asleep, but there's times where I have glimpses of being awake. I have knowledge and and some wisdom that he doesn't possess. And I'm just trying to act with compassion. How important is it? Not every client I have pays top dollar. Um, well, you have a situation that relates to the to to what we're talking about, because there's someone who creates emotional reactions that aren't particularly loving, right? And so I'm I'm working with it, not reacting. I mean, most of it's internally. I don't exhibit the the the, the emotions outwardly, but there has been times today where I rationalized it and. I let it go, but it it triggers when I think about it. 
For me, this is taking me to go further in myself. Up to this point, what I have done is I have observed like my reactions to someone and accepted what is as best as I could. But I realized that someplace in me, I can hold a grudge. My ruminations about such things are really debilitating in some ways. When something really bothers me, a lot of energy is expended inwardly. And I think what Arnaud is saying is that it is actually possible to do this turnaround, but ego just doesn't want to do it. We have to kind of realize that it's not for the other person that we're doing this. It's for us. And on another note, um, I considered uh, to continue the 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 relationship because even though it's not in my favor it seems like what we're talking about is um reaction and i'd like to hear from you as as a practitioner but also as a therapist if you could help make the distinction which i think are no did in his teaching so there's reaction but there's also a healthy expression of emotion so, you know, his quote, if there's an emotion, then we no longer see clearly. I think maybe we all know what he means by that statement, but that statement can also be taken to mean repress your emotions. So I think there's a, there's a, a distinction to be made there that for me is really important. And I, again, I think it has to do with the difference between maybe what Arnaud would would call the difference between um, feeling and emotion or what we might describe as reaction. And I would love to hear what you have to say about that. Well, no denial anywhere is key. This is the reaction that I'm having. That's not a problem necessarily. Feeling in the way that he describes it is like a kind of state of, I hate to use this word love, (laughs) because we don't have a real clear idea about what that means, but an openness to what comes. And if what comes is a reaction, yeah, that's what comes. And I think that it's important to accept that without guilt. But to see, rather than feed that, I do have some choice about how to, how to work with my inner state. All of this, it seems to me, presupposes that we're not repressing. And that's a lot to presuppose. For me, why I became a therapist is because I was just in need. Emotionally, I did not know even what I needed. But what happened was I began to express my negative emotion. And that was like really important for me. Uh, The therapist that I worked with 25 years ago or longer was very accepting and encouraged me to express what was really going on for me. I mean, I just think that this is a trap on the path where where we think that we should act a certain way and we're not in touch with what's really going on with us. Being true to ourselves is the path. And as we do that, we see how it's possible to make this turnaround because we've accepted our feelings. 
if we haven't accepted our feelings, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we can actually make this turnaround with another person and and have an accepting and open relationship with that person. We're kidding ourselves if we can't really accept that I have this reaction toward them. Just one other little piece of that is what I know we call feeling. So a feeling, for example, like grief would be a good one. That's a that's actually a genuine, maybe a response rather than a reaction. How do you tell the difference? Well, and this this is from our nose teaching, and I and I have worked with this myself personally, and I ha- I actually had a very profound experience of this one time on his ashram. Actually, is that <clears throat> if I'm if I'm correct in my understanding, his definition of a feeling is something that arises and if we allow it, it's full play. If we allow it, it's like a wave. So it arises. And if we leave it alone, it arises and it subsides. As does everything. So it, it, it comes and it goes. And what I believe he would refer to as an emotion and what we're talking about tonight as a reaction is it comes up, but then we kind of do something with it. We grab onto it and we ruminate about it and we churn about it. Sort of like putting the lid on a pressure cooker. It just like stays in there and boils and doesn't go anywhere. And I I think that's a really important distinction. I know it has been for me and I think it as practitioners on the path is a really important distinction so we don't get into this realm of what you know John Wellwood called spiritual bypassing. It's important to be able to make that distinction. Otherwise we're doing what you just talked about, which is we're trying to behave a certain way. We're trying to we're trying to be spiritual, you know? There are there's a lot of nuance here. Yes, there's a lot of nuance. Yes. I, I guess that's my if if we have to boil it down, that's my point. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of nuance, a well, lot of um distinctions to be made. Well yeah, you're bringing some nuance to it. Thank you. Yeah. Let me continue a little bit further and then perhaps we can have some more discussion. Will there ever be a time where there will only be favorable people in situations? Probably not. What does it say about us if there is a place of ever-present peace in us that we don't live from? If I understand what he's saying, what it says is that there's something in us that is wrong about something. You have to understand we need to bring some nuance to this consideration of being wrong. It's not something to feel guilty about, but we're wrong in the way that we relate with life. If we hold a grudge, I mean, this is what is. He says that every spiritual tradition says that there is something in us that has to change. If we want to go deeper on the spiritual path, we can accept that our approach is egocentric. And in that sense, we're wrong. And we can do a turnaround and embrace, uh, uh, welcome difficult situations and relate with people in an open and kind way. Some of the Tibetans could do that to the Chinese, then maybe it's possible that we could do that. But 
you know, that's not a matter of being in denial or, re- or repressing our feelings. So how do we get from here to there? I think the way that we get from here to there is by accepting that we do have these strong reactions and letting that work on us while considering this point that it is possible to do a turnaround. And just to get a little gritty about it, there have been times when people have really pissed me off. And I can kind of ruminate about that sometimes. I don't have that going on like about anybody right at this moment, but I know that this kind of situation could probably arise and I would have that reaction to certain people. And I also know, having really considered this material in a little more depth, that I could let myself have that, that strong reaction toward them. And if I choose, I could turn it around. I could go up to that person and I could not hold a grudge. With the kids and families that I work with in this residential treatment center, there are people who hold grudges forever. And I often ask these kids, hey, listen, I'm not getting down on any family member, but is that what you want to do? I mean, do you want to like hold that kind of relationship to people? And we're all spiritual, right? But I think the same principles apply, perhaps in a less overt way. He says, the main point is this about face in the moment when a circumstance represents the unfavorable side of existence. If we want happiness, we have to renounce bearing a grudge. That's, that can be pretty hard. I know among my friends, I've had friends that I really related to and that that I've really liked, and they had tremendous grudges with each other. And you could see how painful that was between people. So he says that we can develop the attitude that if I lose my peace, I mean, of course, we have to really be able to observe ourselves and see that we've lost our peace in any situation. He says, what can I correct? We could have that approach. He says that this is so contrary to ordinary experience, and there's no other possibility for ever-present peace than, than to work with this. And he says that if one situation loses its power, so, you know, if there's one situation that is extremely unfavorable to you that you could see looking at in a different way and welcoming it in a way, I have had extreme situations like this. I wouldn't have wished for them in a million years. But I have an inkling that I could welcome what comes rather than ward it off. To me, that is a very high practice. He says that if a situation loses its power to upset us, the path is open so that one day nothing can disturb us internally. I don't know, it's easy to kind of look at that too and develop a concept about where the path is leading us so that we never have any emotions. But I don't think he's saying that. I think he's saying that the possibility for a human being is to be able to be surrendered to what comes to the extent that we welcome it. Part three, from self to others. Many of you have probably heard this teaching. It came from Swami Prajnanpad that the path is about the evolution of only me to me and others, to 
others and me into only others. Doesn't seem like we can jump from one end to the other. It seems like the path takes us step by step. He says that in order to be settled in ever-present peace, unselfishness must win out over selfishness. And that miracles happen when we do that. You know, when I read that, I just thought about my teacher's teacher, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. It seemed that he had been transformed into a state where he lived for other people. And I think any real master, that's what they do. I think Gurdjieff did that. And many Hindu and Buddhist masters. Just to see that that's possible. Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar used to go to the temple. There were stories about this. You know, big temple in Tiruvannamalai, India. And he could sometimes be seen around the corner of a temple holding up his, his fan and blessing people, invisibly doing this. Like, wow. And of course, the, um, the misunderstanding of that would be like us thinking that we can do something like that without having really worked uh, on our own self-awareness about what's going on with us. Part of acting unselfishly means not spending a lot of time and energy on useless, self-indulgent, negative thoughts and emotions. So what I was talking about a little while ago is that as we self-observe, we can see that we can ruminate about and obsess about a lot of different things, not just about people or situations that are unfavorable, but about anything. And part of unselfishness is about, is not getting caught in that. The time and energy that we spend thinking about those things is a waste. I was just reading the other day about how, I don't know where they get these statistics from, but like 40% of food in America is wasted. You know, it's wasted in transport, it's wasted in processing, it's wasted in restaurants, at home when we buy stuff that rots in the refrigerator. I mean, 40%, like, wow. But he says that the biggest waste of energy in the universe is caused by our mental ruminations. To forgive someone, understand them, to put ourselves in their position, to have compassion for them, and not be in denial about where we're coming from, about what's, what's going on for us. To me, it seems like it, when you consider these teachings, things loosen up. To me, that's the point. It's not like we're going to all of a sudden stop having whatever reactions we have, but they can kind of loosen up, and then you can perhaps get to the point where you can do this turnaround. The two people that I was thinking about before are friends of mine. You know, it, it took years of them battling each other, and then things relaxed, and things could be different. I don't know that it needs to take years. At the same time, he says something which is pretty astonishing. He says, I think this is another of Swami Prajnanpad's prescriptions, his teacher's sayings. That love is calculation. And love is calculation. I mean, love is something that is completely not calculated. It just kind of comes and it's overwhelming. It's 
spontaneous. It's free. It's not calculation. But he says that calculation has to do with considering the results of our action. So I used to, and I still do, <laughs> work long hours. And, you know, I like my work. And I always would think, you know, I'd like to get ahead of the game so that I'll have more time later on. So I'll get this all done. But calculation, if I spend this time at work getting things done that I need to get done, then I'm spending less time with my wife and my children. If I do the calculation, where is there more profit in the long run? He says that how we can tell that we've made the right calculation is if we're at peace, if we're perfectly at peace. So that works on me too. You know, I made a decision about doing something today. And I was not really at peace about it. I couldn't see through to what else to do. So I kind of had to follow this idea that I had of doing this thing. And then later on, I kind of found out that, oh, maybe that wasn't the right way to do it. But I do appreciate the teaching that we can tell that we've made the right calculation if we're perfectly at peace. And maybe that's not something we can do all the time. I think that the, the right thing might be something that would be angry. I think the right thing might be really saying something directly. I think it might be doing something that somebody else might not think is so loving. But am I perfectly at peace about it? To me, that could be a barometer. Part four, taking everything as a challenge and an opportunity. Well, we've talked about this idea of being faithful to ourselves as we are. Not what should be, but what is. And since these emotions get triggered in me based on interdependent forces, it's not like I choose these emotions that come to me necessarily, but I can work with the emotions that come and work a little bit more step by step to accept the unfavorable as well as the favorable. And he says that this is the key to being transformed through everyday pursuits that are not necessarily seen as spiritual. We're not doing some high practice. We're not doing something that looks spiritual necessarily, but internally. We're relating in an inner way to welcome that which is unfavorable. Anything in your life that you see as unfavorable that you might come to welcome? I think I am going to say this. My mother died today in my house. She'd been in a hospital for a few days. And I had this knowing when we were in the hospital. I'd never, I'd never really thought about this before. I mean, I thought about it, but not really seriously, that I could bring her in my home. It just felt the right thing to do when I was in the hospital last Saturday. 
I didn't. I think I made some calculation about it without really knowing that I was doing that. For me, it was a profound event. And my brother was here. You know, I can't say that I, I was able to welcome this event. But I can say that considering these ideas helped me to kind of do a turnaround about this and approach it as this is really, this is really for the best. This is what's happening. And I can give it everything to, to accept it and to be of some service. You know, that differs, that kind of unfavorable situation, so to speak, differs a lot from things that are unfavorable every day, small things. But practicing with the small things, I really think, allows for the possibility that the bigger things are, are workable more. Last week, my son was here. And we have this like really nice cutting board. And he brought some pizza dough and he put it on this board and we made this pizza, which was great. And then afterwards, I realized that the whole thing was stained. I don't know why, but you just don't put that kind of uh, food on a board because now there's this big stain on it. And I was thinking, (laughs) what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. If I weigh this against something that's really unfavorable. I don't really need to say or do anything. When I see him, you know, we might talk about this thing, but I don't need to make any kind of a deal about it. I can have a loving attitude toward him about it. I'll buy a new cutting board. He says that to attempt here and now communion with a person is the path to non-duality. Like, wow. I think about non-duality as being like just about the highest principle possible, being one with. But really a way to practice with that is by being in communion with another person here and now. I mean, we can do this like right now. We can, we can work with that. And so when unfavorable situations present themselves, can I relate with it in that sense. This material to me is really a stretch. But I've also found over the years that when I encounter teachings that kind of make me stretch like that, I find over time an ability to work with them more. That that was completely impossible at the time when I first heard them. And he says that the first step is to see that we're caught in our own thoughts and feelings, ruminations, and to understand them and not judge ourselves. To me, understanding them has to do with realizing our egocentrism. That's the way it is. Not bad. But that is the cause of suffering, the one root cause. Perhaps. And one thing that I'd mentioned earlier, we actually do this for ourselves. What we do for the other, we actually do for ourselves. Not for our ego, but for ego transcendence. 
by practicing with that, with loving what we do not love and, and unfavorable situations, enemies become a precious help. Ay, ay, ay. Gosh, if I for a minute allow myself to fantasize about actually being able to do that, you think about these Tibetans and how the Dalai Lama relates with the Chinese who try to demonize him and somehow he's got a loving attitude toward them. Like, wow. After they've destroyed the Tibetan tradition and murdered people, Arnaud goes as far to say, well, how about rapists and murderers and like that? Of course you're going to have a reaction to them. And he says, no, we're talking about this across the board. And of course, there is a big distinction that needs to be made between behaviors and people, being able to understand and, and have compassion for them. I know that there's nothing in society that supports that kind of perspective outside of the spiritual arena. So he says that the challenge is, will I practice with what arises? He says that to use what is unfavorable to get in contact with what is beyond favorable and unfavorable. I mean, that's how this works, to be able to relate with whatever unfavorable experiences come, to contact that which is beyond favorable and unfavorable. Because that's what we do, you know? We like and dislike, and that's all based on me, which substantiates my own existence in a way, separate from everything else. But wouldn't that be boring? Nothing is favorable or unfavorable. I mean, God, I mean, (laughs) then what's going to be interesting or exciting? Here's where he makes the distinction between emotion and feeling. And he says that feeling is a state of love for all that is not dependent on circumstance. Frankly, I just don't think that we can fully understand what that is unless we're in that state. But I think that we've all had the experience of that. And there is tremendous nuance to all relationships. So to one person, we have a relationship of marriage, to another, a friend, to another, of coworker or of boss or child. But to have the state of love permeate all those relationships, which have different flavors and different colors. I mean, my only reference point for that is the few spiritual masters that I have had some experience with. But I do believe it is possible for all of us. And this is another thing that Arno says. Why isn't that possible for you? It is. To me, that's pushing the envelope. Okay. And so what do I have to do? Well, it seems like he's pointing it out here. And then in ending the book, he encourages us to be patient and faithful to ourselves day by day not pretending. If we don't feel love, hey, we don't feel love. But to be patient and faithful to what is true for us day by day. He says that even when egocentrism vanishes, something will continue to concern us, the suffering of others. To me, that's the spiritual path in a nutshell, described in a lot of different ways. And when I hear it like this, do I, is that something I want? I don't know, but to me, it's always good to have a sense of where we're going. And I think at some level, we, we all really do want this. 
And certainly it's not possible to find the indestructible in us without practicing in the way that he's describing, I think. Well, that's, that's been my reaction. I mean, I'm not sure you're having the same reaction that I had, but I'm really mulling this over. It's kind of dumbfounding to me. Mm-hmm. The thing about the path is that we're always being pulled, pulled along to the next level. I don't know if it ever ends. I'm just going to sit here in silence with you for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. I did this with my mom today. <laughs> 